0: Welcome to High Action. I'm
1: Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature Luthier Linda Manzer.
2: A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash
1: high action. All right, guys, good to see you. Here we are, episode 12 of the High Action Podcast. How about that? How, How about well, that? Unbelievable. 12. Well into the double digits now. And we have a unique guest today, don't we, Perry? Somebody who's kind of a little outside of the type of guest that we've interviewed in the past.
0: Yeah, definitely. The great Linda Manzer, one of the leading luthiers. Try saying that three times fast. Leading luthier. <laughs> <laughs> leading luthier. <laughs> and yeah, she, she's terrific. It was such an honor to get to speak with her.
1: Yeah and and we um have wanted to really try to reach out into the guitar community beyond all the jazz guitarists who we know and and people who are really fronting uh, our little scene that we've got and it's just it's so great to have a discussion with somebody who has obviously thought a lot about their craft and you know really is concerned and and interested in what people like us have to say about something like um, the instrument, you know, I know, Will, you've had guitars made for you too, right? I mean, working with these luthiers has been kind of an interesting process, hasn't it?
2: It is. It adds another dimension into everything you're thinking about because playing guitar is such a two-part relationship, you and the guitar. And then the luthier adds in, the you know, and I, someone like Linda seems to be very accommodating to when people make requests and seems very, um, very happy to, to just... She's very open-minded. Yeah. As opposed to some Luthiers that, you know, we've worked with might be more set in their ways, you know.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I guess that goes for players, too. It's like there's a lot of players who are and teachers who are really set in their ways and others that seem to always be open to new information. And I tell you, that's been something about New West for the longest time that I feel very lucky that this group, it's constantly making me kind of like think about new things and try new things, take in other people's opinions. And then, I mean, you can tell Linda has really done that a bunch in terms of how she's designed her instruments and everything. Perry, did you have much of a chance to look at her website and check out some of her other instruments too?
0: I did, yeah. She has the, the you know incredible collection of hollow bodies, um, the 18 inch, the 16 inch, and then I think the smaller one, which is almost like a tenor guitar, where it starts with the instrument at the fifth fret, I believe. Um, we covered that a little bit in the interview with her, but yeah, she's she's incredible, and I think for guitar players, which is pretty much our audience. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you have some sort of you're interest. Probably a in, guitar player. <laughs> yeah, you have <laughs> some sort of interest in this instrument, and you know, just understanding that the luthier's job is to try to make the instrument sing and try to make our job easier. You know. Mm-hmm. And I think we're always thinking of ways we can advance our playing on our instrument. And really, it starts with how it's built, you know, and, and the miles that you put into it after that, of course. But it starts with how it's built. And it was really interesting to hear her talk all about how the instrument resonates, the variable tension, her journey, her time with Pat. And she's got a great sense of humor. So it was just fun connecting with her. Right. Definitely. Well,
1: I think we should get into it. It's a brief interview uh, compared to some of our other ones, but really detailed and interesting to get into the mind of somebody who's incredibly gifted at their craft and very, very accomplished. This is the great Linda Manzer here on High Action. how are you? It's so good to see you. Thanks for taking the time to do this today. This is awesome.
3: Great. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'll warn you before I start. I have a slight distraction. I have a squirrel in my shop. What? <laughs> he, just, he just showed up like a second before. Wow. So I'm just, like, I can hear him gnawing away. So if I lose power and okay. you hear his Squeaky has bit the dust. He's in the wall. I can hear him in the wall. He just made his way from the yeah. roof down to the wall. So there's going to be I don't know how I'm going to deal with
1: it. Well, if we have to stop and you got to go get the squirrel, it's all good because anything can happen <laughs> on High Action podcasts, Linda. So okay. it's, all, it's all good. So, you know, we're, we're so honored to have you because, Linda, whether you know it or not, you know the guys and I, we've, we've talked a lot about your instruments for many years because we, we believe that they're just some of the, the best. They're some of the best that have ever been made. And it's so fascinating talking to luthiers as a guitar player because while we share so many common visions and goals, you know, we're always thinking about sound. And like for guitar players, sometimes it's about us overcoming the feel of the instrument or fighting an instrument. And for a luthier, it's like you're thinking about that from from day one. And mm-hmm. so I'm just I'd love to learn about your background.
3: Uh, my heroes were people like, uh, you know, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor. Right. I grew up in that was my my era of growing up with that music and seeing those people performing live. And uh, yeah, it was pretty incredible.
1: Did you study um, art in college? Was that something I read? Yes. I
3: went to two different art colleges um, and I kept finding myself in the woodworking shop, strangely. And I had already made a delcimer from a kit uh, Mm -hmm. as a teenager in high school. And then um, I just kept finding myself in the woodworking shop. That should have been my clue. Uh, and I, then I went to another art college and I was a a bad folk singer. And, uh, so (laughs) I was like a painter, a bad folk singer and I was making dulcimers. And one day I realized that combining all those three things, uh, would actually be, you know, the science and the, the working and making stuff. And, uh, the music was like, suddenly I thought I could make guitars. And so I started to hunt for a teacher and that was in the, uh, I think that was in the mid Oh, God, early 80s. -hmm. And I uh, studied, I I found Jean-Claude Larivé in Toronto, and he uh, hired me. I bugged him until he hired me. He he didn't want to hire me because I was a, a woman, and I had to talk him into it.
1: That's astonishing. I mean, and I guess that kind of is the, um, it's not an elephant in the room or anything, but it is fascinating as a as a woman luthier, there's just less women building guitars, but mm-hmm. there's such a long line of great Canadian guitar makers, and, you know, it seems like a lot of people interact with, with Larrave, and this was around the time that you also had met Jimmy DeQuisto, too. Is that true?
3: Uh, yeah, I started actually, it was 1974. Before when I started working, gosh, it got, it's so long ago. Yeah. I, I started working with Larrave. And yet you're right that the original apprentices that were there at that time were all the people who were, were ended up being in the Group of Seven Guitar Show, mm-hmm. uh, the Gr- Group of Seven Guitar Project. Um, and um, then a few years later, after I was out on my own, it was about 1982, 83, I um, approached... Well, I, he actually, Jimmy DeQuisto called me about something, and we started talking, and I asked if I could go visit him uh, in Long Island. And then once I got there, I asked if I could study, and we worked out an arrangement. So I I studied with him for uh, over off and on, because I was sort of commuting from uh, Toronto to Mm -hmm. Long Island but over the course of uh, 83, 84.
1: And was was his health okay then too? He seemed to be kind of, I mean, his the 80s are such a big era for his instruments. You know, he was experimenting with solid body guitars and all sorts of stuff too.
3: I entered his his life at a really interesting time because he was starting to kind of get appreciated for what he actually did. And he was transitioning from copies of D'Angelico's to coming up with his own ideas. He was right. very hungry to break away from, everybody kept ordering the old style of archtop guitar from him, and he had a lot of ideas. So he was, he, in some ways, he said he was sort of jealous that I could do anything I wanted because I didn't have this weight on my shoulders that he did. Uh, I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing. I mean, he, he had epilepsy, mm-hmm. uh, so he warned me that he could have um, a fit while I was there, and he told me what to do, So and he took a lot of medic- medi- medications for it. Right. but uh, I never experienced that when I was with him
1: Wow so. and and how amazing to get to work with him so early on in your building I mean that would did be it? like that would be like a guitar player today getting you know to work with Matheny right away or something like you know some heavy guy I mean Jimmy was um you know is this the modern innovator of the arch top mm-hmm. guitar and did you feel like after studying with him that you had to make a choice between really pursuing flat top guitars and arch top guitars or one or the other because that is something I feel find really striking about your practice is that you're so accomplished with both styles of instruments, and that seems to be really rare amongst the luthier community, where people really specialize in arch tops, or they specialize in flat tops.
3: Um, No, I didn't feel any pressure at all, because at that time, it was hard to make a living as a guitar maker, and you had to be versatile. So I actually had to learn how to make every single guitar that anybody ever asked me about. Mm. So if they asked for a a steel string or a nylon string, which is what I learned from Jean-Claude Larravee. Uh, and then, you know, when I learned how to make archtops from Jimmy, there's a really long, steep learning curve of how to make them. I'm happy to take my time learning and sort of infusing my philosophy into what, you know, the, the basics I learned from him. Because the role of the archtop over the years has changed. It used to be a big band, cut through the band, mm-hmm. uh, acoustic instrument uh, meant as really a rhythm percussive almost instrument. And now it's actually, it's a really versatile instrument because my, what I try to do is make them have uh, more sustain than uh, traditional arch tops. That's my goal. Um, That's just my particular preference of where I'm going. I want them to be as acoustic as I can make them. If you want to stick a pickup on them, fine. Mm-hmm. I'll do that for you, but <laughs> 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 but uh, they're very, as Jimmy would say, they're the most versatile instrument because you can change the tailpiece, you can change the action fairly easy, you can change the the bridge, you can mess around with all sorts of stuff that you can't on a flat top.
1: They really are versatile, and they really have a wide range. And when you get into um, the sound of them and get a good concept of your sound, there's so much you can you can do with them. Did did you feel like DeQuisto at that time? You so he was building solid bodies, and he was. It seemed like a lot of those instruments were more. He wanted to go more electric with his designs at that time too. Is that true or?
3: I actually i think he had just started working on some electrics like Mm -hmm. they were they had a hollow chamber in them and uh so they looked like uh a a les paul the one i saw that was there when he when i was there and Mm -hmm. he would you know he would carve the top so all the the only difference between well i mean there's tons of other differences but the main difference was there's chambers so think of an l5 that had warmth Mm -hmm. and that's that's where the direction he was going in but after i was with him he uh struck up a relationship with Scott Chinnery, who was the, yes. the famed guitar uh, collector, mm-hmm. who really changed a lot of archtop guitar builders' lives by recognizing living builders, because yes. at that time, the only good archtop was a vintage archtop, which was a little bit of the dilemma DeQuisto found himself in, is that everybody wanted a you know traditional uh, deangelical style uh, New Yorker kind of guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scott Chinnery just said he, he saw that we were that the community of archtop Builders were doing some cool things. And he uh, commissioned all of us to build one blue guitar, which became the Blue Guitar Collection, yes. which is actually uh, Scott Chinnery passed away in the year 2000. He um, his collection has is actually for sale now. That Blue Guitar Collection is about to come up for sale. Wow. So
1: the entire collection so- as a whole.
3: I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Cause let's yeah. see,
1: I'm off the top of my head. You're looking at Mark Lacey, John Montaleon, Bob Benedetto, you, oh, who else? There are so many luthiers that, Ted Megus, who's from Portland. Yep. I, um, a lot of Anderson, Steve uh, Anderson.
3: No, actually, I think he somehow wasn't in the project for some reason. Uh, but, right. uh, um, Steve Grimes, Tom Rebecca. Yeah. um, Uh, John Zeidler,
1: yes, who passed, Uh, yes, yeah,
3: and then what happened actually after John uh, after the blue guitar collection, uh, John Zeidler got ill, and a few of us got together and we built a tribute guitar for John to raise money for his cancer care. Unfortunately, he died before we finished the guitar, but there is a guitar that most of the people who were in the group of seven guitar project uh we collectively built one guitar as a fundraiser for uh his family oh wow and and, mm. and uh so it was built by benedetto and monteleone and tom Rebecchi, steve grimes myself buscarino uh bill cummins uh mm. ted magus uh steve anderson uh well i'll forget somebody i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry uh yeah a bunch of, uh, uh callings bill callings um uh santa santa cruz richard hoover everybody uh, that we could squeeze in it was pretty tight and uh, it was ended up being a really cool guitar each person did a different part
1: ah it's so rad we're discussing all this work you've done with all these luthiers all of you have contributed to a push forward with this instrument after you worked with jimmy did you want to stay in in new york and long island or did you want to get back to canada and and (laughs) and do all that and and really start your practice there
3: I, at that time, I was with uh, Jimmy. I was commuting between Toronto and mm-hmm. Long Island. My father was ill, mm-hmm. uh, so I, had, I was going back and forth a lot. Mm-hmm. But I'd also started my relationship with uh, Pat Metheny, and I was about four guitars into that one, including right. the Picasso. Was uh, so I, I kind of had my own career going on. Jimmy actually offered me a job. I'd already been an apprentice, mm-hmm. and uh, I just I wanted to do my thing. I was sort of ready. at the starting gates to, you know, I had this incredible opportunity working with uh, Pat. So I, I kind of jumped on, I I, I had so many projects on the go. I was, it was insane.
1: Was it true that you wrote Pat kind of a fan letter first, and then you met him at a concert backstage and that, and it was around that time you developed that, that relationship for him to build these instruments for you?
3: Yes. Uh, it was in Toronto. I wrote him a letter and I, I actually didn't expect a response. Uh, and I invited him over to my shop the next day for tea thinking, you know, he's, he's in Toronto. He'll just hang out for a while. That's what they do. Not knowing that as you guys know, the moment you're finished, you start packing up and getting ready for your next destination. So I was able to, uh, they, they came out and found me after the show. And I, I went back and talked with Pat and, um, it was, a, it was a long evening. It, it, uh, it was with Danny Gottlieb, his drummer, Pat, and I had an apprentice at the time, uh, Peter Jacobson, And the four of us, uh, basically Pat had played the whole concert over again on some guitars that I ran home and brought back. Wow. Uh, I was so completely unprepared to meet him, actually. Um, but uh, we ended up making a really nice personal connection. And um, he, I think he just saw in me something that I could work with him because he, right. he was, he had a lot of ideas, and he was looking for somebody. And I was, I was lucky enough that I was that person. So,
1: yeah. And and had you built for um, Bruce yet or um, Gordon Lightfoot at that point too? I'm, I was trying to kind of put this lineage together of when some of these big name artists had gotten a hand of your guitars at that point, because that must have been a huge lift having artists like that play your instruments right away too.
3: Yeah. I mean, it was sort of a bit dumb luck in some ways. Like I, I knew, um, I, I made the first famous person I made a guitar for was actually Santana. Oh, really? um, <laughs> cool. know, start small, right? Yeah. No right.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> and, awesome. Uh, That's so cool.
3: <laughs> I think I, I'm pretty sure he still has it, but I don't know. I haven't had any communication with him in 20 years or something, but, um, yeah. And then, yeah. Then Pat and then uh, or, no, I think then Gordon Lightfoot, oh, it's so long ago. And then Pat, and then, you know, many guitars for Pat.
1: Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by AEA Ribbon Microphones and Preamps. AEA has been manufacturing high quality ribbon mics under the AEA name since 1998. But prior to that, all the way back in the 70s, Wes Dooley himself, the founder of AEA, began servicing the old RCA-44 style ribbon microphones, which had been heavily in use since the 40s and 50s. Wes's uh, knowledge of these microphones, plus new advances in technology, allowed him to develop the AEA product line. Currently in New West, we use the uh, N22, the N8 even mics like the R88 and R84 from time to time. But all across the board, the entire product line is amazing. We absolutely love his microphones. So if you'd like to learn more about AEA Ribbon Mics or to purchase one of your own, visit aaribbonmics.com.
0: Thanks again for making some time for us. Uh, I'm I'm so curious to ask you some questions as a guitar player who's Played a 175 for 20 years and a guy that recently has a a great acoustic from Jeff Traugott, who we've had a relationship with in this group. I'm I'm fascinated to ask you uh, just about kind of some of the nuts and bolts of what goes into creating the guitar the way you want and some of the questions that I have as a player. I think a lot of the listeners uh, in this podcast might have some of the similar questions that I've had when they pick up guitars and they kind of wonder why they feel a certain way or why they resonate a certain way and i was hoping that maybe you could help explain to us and the listeners sort of why these guitars have this kind of result when you play them and and i guess the first question specifically that i have in regards to this is about arch tops i've played so many different arch tops and i've always kind of tried to compare them to the feel that i have with my 175 which always feels like home court to me you know Mm -hmm. and one of the main things i feel first when i pick up a guitar is the variable tension and i know that there's something that goes into that i'm not quite sure what it is but i was hoping you could explain it like for example when i play a benedetto it always feels tight to me in a way and i think it has something to do with the way that the tailpiece and the and the uh nut of the guitar are set up uh versus an old gibson that feels so loose and open to me So can you kind of talk to us and our listeners about kind of what goes into that archtop and specifically the tension that's created?
3: It is actually a bit of the holy grail of guitar making is to make the guitar feel fabulous so that it's, you know, it's it's not you're not thinking about the guitar when you're playing, you're just uh it it's not it, it's a tool that's functioning really well and there's there's a few things like the peghead angle could could change it. the um, on archtop specifically, uh, you can raise and lower the the action so that there's more of a, a straight line between the uh, the nut and the tailpiece. So you you can raise and lower, you know you, you can raise and lower the bridge so there's more cut angle over the bridge. And if you reduce that, you're going to get a little less tension because a lot of the energy... But what's going to happen, you're going to trade that off for the down bearing on the bridge that's pushing down on the top, which is making the top move up and down. So when you have less tension on the guitar, you're going to have less sustain. And then the reason it's complicated, though, is because you can also have too much tension on the guitar and you can mute it. So there's this really complicated balancing act of, High ha- how high the, the the break angle is over the over the bridge, mm-hmm. which is why when you can raise and lower the tailpiece, you can change that. Which is one of the the the, thing, the nice things about a, a tailpiece that goes up and down a bit, so you can play around with that. So you can you can reduce the tension, but you, it's always a trade off, you know, because there's only so much energy. Um, yeah.
0: and I've even felt that on on my one seventy five that I had. I put a different. Um, different bridge on it i put a rosewood bridge on it and i've raised up the action on it now i can't change the tailpiece on it i can't raise that up and down but i did notice that raising the action also kind of raised the tension in a way that was actually preferable to me Ah, Uh, when i play a benedetto sometimes i feel like it goes too far in that direction and i feel like there's a tightness to it um but i appreciate you answering this very difficult question in a succinct way because it is is clear to me um i guess another question i have is just in terms of sustain that you get from the guitar and the different parts of the guitar that go into the sustain we've had this debate over many hours on the road together as a band (laughs) in terms of how we've set up our guitars um our cohort cohort here the wonderful will brahm has been known to shave his neck on his (laughs) life to, it, it's happened on a couple occasions <laughs> to create like because uh, you know th- those guitars can have kind of a beefy neck. Like my one seventy five has this beefy neck, and I've come to love it, even though it can be challenging in a way. And I'm so curious to ask you what goes into the sustain. Does the does a thick neck help sustain on the instrument? Does a different kind of headstock, like <laughs> the difference between like D'Angelico being like a big headstock, or something like a ken parker guitar with a much thinner headstock does that all go into the sustain
3: everything yeah everything contributes again a simple question and an incredibly complicated answer right um just a little experiment that your listeners or you guys can try if you do this carefully is get a a clamp and clamp it to your peg head and you'll hear some sustain the sustain will change oh boy there's a whole bunch of other things like the arch of the top um that's one of the things i'm doing is i've lowered the arch on the top of my the the, the angle it's like the, the the arch is a lower arch on my arch top so that there's more chance of sustain uh when it's a really big high arch uh mm-hmm. you're spending a lot of you you, you need more tension to make that move and you need probably, you the heavier gauge strings are going to help make that move. I'm not, I'm not giving a very succinct answer. No, no, There's a woman called Carleen Hutchins, and I was in a, at a talk that she gave with a bunch of um, violin makers, and there was a player there who um, was playing. She did a little demonstration, and she took some silly putty, and she started moving it around on on the violin. And the person would keep playing the same phrasing, the, the same notes over and over again, and she just keep moving the silly putty. And uh, it was unbelievable how much it, just this little hunk of silly putty changed the sustain or the the fullness of of the notes. It was quite shocking. So, I mean, that's just one example of of, uh-huh. of clamping something to the peg head. Or in her case, she put silly putty on the end of the fingerboard um, uh-huh. at the other end. Um, also, the neck joint uh, is really important. The the coupling of of all the parts of um like how the bridge fits on top of the um of uh, the guitar like the 175 there's got two feet that are right. touching in my bridges the whole base of it there's no there's not two feet there's just one big foot big foot
0: i know that there's so much go- that goes into it and i can sort of relate to that as a guitar player myself there's so much that goes into our artistry and yes. I think one of the things that we really Uh, respect about luthiers is they put so much time and energy into their craft and I know that that's the same thing that we go through as guitar players and to that point when you're collaborating with uh, professional guitar players that are looking to try to achieve this sound and this feel from this instrument there there must be a delicate balance that you have to come to with them versus what you're trying to do as an artist and what they're trying to do as an artist and You know, we've all been fortunate to work with with really great Luthiers, whether it's Steven Marquion, Jeff Traugott, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. What are some of the important things that you've uh, noticed in your years of working with incredible players um, in terms of coming up with a successful collaboration? Do you have to give a little bit? Do they have to give a little bit? How does that, you know, what have you learned from that process?
3: It varies depending on the client. Um, for instance, Pat Matheny would often just give me a phrase like, Can you make a guitar that sounds like Charlie Hayden's bass or uh, has that sustain or that buzz or that? So that ended up being a sitar, fretless sitar guitar, arch top. Uh, so it had a bit of punch as opposed to a flat top sitar guitar, which I've also made for Pat. So he kind of lets me ro- run with an idea because he trusts me. Uh, and I kind of know what he likes. Technically, I know what kind of neck shape he likes. Uh, I'm I'm actually working on an arch top for him right now. Um, wow. It's going to be big and loud, um, wow. cool. and it's up on the shelf there. I, I ah. probably shouldn't show it to you, but that's so cool. It's uh, it's close. No, but you, he should, just said... you should. You <laughs> should. <laughs> 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 it's, <laughs> it's pretty. I want. It, I I need him to reveal yeah, it. I think because yeah. it's pretty. It's pretty unusual looking, of That's course. That's a
1: great way for us to upset um, Pat on the High Action Podcast is to debut yeah, well, his instrument before him. mail <laughs> him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: um, and then some people have really, they come to me with a fully formed idea of exactly what they want, and I'm basically their hands. And if I trust that they know what they're talking about, you know, like somebody who's a really seasoned player, I really listen to their technical expertise. Because I figure it's their guitar, it's not my guitar, and I'm just the vehicle to make it. Um, and then some people just let me go wild, you know, because I uh, sometimes I, 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 there's another guitar I'm working on that's also right beside Pat's up there. That is, uh, the, the, the fellow has just told me to go crazy and do anything I've ever thought of that I, and he, he wants me to kind of surprise him. So all these ideas that have been, you know, percolating in my head for years. Um, but I like direction from people who can articulate what they want. Um, and I also appreciate if they let me do my thing um, and just sort of, you know, trust me. Because I presume if people are coming to me, they already trust me. Right. Uh, and and then, because if they, if if I get micromanaged too much, I can imagine, for instance, if you guys are writing a score for a, a movie or something, and the person was really on your shoulder telling you everything they wanted, it would be really hard for the creative juices to flow. So I'm I'm kind of a little bit like that, but probably a little less than you guys, because you guys have to really create magic with every song with every
0: note. I would say that there's a lot of similarities though. And I think that um, hearing you talk about, you know, the the sort of ways in which you've sort of balanced um, the direction that you've got from people, whether it's one phrase or something that's, you know, more fully realized, your ability to kind of do both of those things um, probably really attributes to the great success that you've had. So I just want to let you know that that's how I'm thinking of it and it's, it's really a pleasure to hear you speak about your craft.
2: I've never played one of your guitars, but I've heard them so much, especially, you know, coming up like in college, listening to the first couple Julian Lodge albums. I love um, like the blend of like the amp with the hollowness, like miking the guitar. And and I'm curious what it's like for you to hear your guitars in different settings, especially live, because like a, an acoustic guitar or, or a, a hollow body guitar, you know, sounds amazing on an album miked and and recorded the right way but like maybe take for instance someone like pat playing it live in these giant venues do you hear new things is it unexpected
3: um it's well it's completely thrilling obviously Mm -hmm. for me i mean i almost had a heart attack the first time i saw pat playing my guitar on stage (laughs) um i i had no idea he was going to perform with it because he'd had it for a few months and he came to toronto and uh, I remember I was so excited I could barely listen, you know, because, uh, and he was on a revolving stage. It was in Toronto in a place called Ontario Place. They had a, a stage that rotated. So slowly he came into view, which was very dramatic, and he's playing my guitar on the song First Circle. And that was, you know, that's a pretty dramatic song that, you know, is basically he's thrashing on the guitar and it's a crescendo and goosebumps and, uh, so I made it through that performance, <laughs> That's
0: um, Cool. but,
3: uh, you know, hearing people perform with them, I mean, it's kind of, it's also a little nerve wracking because if anything goes wrong, I feel like it's my fault. No. Um, you know, like if there's a buzz <laughs> or, you know, uh, or, uh, if I, but also, it's also a lot to do with the sound person who know if they know the room, like, um, mm. Pat um, had worked with this extraordinary sound guy called David Oakes, um, who he and I would sit at the control board, and uh, he would talk to me about what he'd done with the sound and how he was, you know, he, shaping it to the to the room, you know, because he would have it was, you know, it was, it, he would make it sound so natural, and he prided himself on making it sound natural but really l- loud, so that you know, there's a band that it would uh, you'd be able to hear an acoustic guitar with a band. A very loud band. So, yeah, it's it's wow. exciting. I mean, it's always exciting. Everybody plays it differently. Everybody has a different relationship with the guitar. And uh, what I'm what I like is when it, I just see the joy. You know, when somebody's enjoying playing it. And uh, yeah, I get back to this thing of it being a tool, where it's not. The, the Pat Pat said this actually. What he was looking for was something that didn't get in the way of his musical idea, so that really the guitar is almost invisible. So like I'm obviously I'm looking at it, but um, the idea is that it's really a vehicle for you guys to get your musical statement across as best as it can be done.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I also wanted to just zone in on a couple specific guitars of yours. I'm curious how you how you come about giving the sitar guitar the sitar sound. It sounds amazing. I was watching that video on your website.
3: Yeah, it's well. Actually, that was uh, I studied uh, how sitars are made, um, mm-hmm. and there's um, a particular way the saddle is shaped, so that it has a particular buzz. And the main technical difficulty with a sitar guitar is is, is the string is actually dragging along, and and this the saddle is interfering with the string, right. which is why it's buzzing, which is usually a bad thing. But here, <laughs> you're trying to get <laughs> it to the, buzz, yeah. and uh, so. But as you, it's it's like a the string is going over a ramp like over a, an arch uh-huh. so but as you play up the fingerboard as you go higher and higher and higher uh, you're changing the intonation point you're changing the point the string is coming off of this rounded saddle so your intonation can be a total mess on sitars and even
2: on fretted ones
3: yeah because it's not the, the frets in the right place but the the, the saddle is point is right. moving the, the, the that end of the string where it's jumping off the uh, the saddle is actually moving, and it can move up to you know half an inch. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe not quite that much, but yeah. It's, so I make the saddle; each piece is movable, so you can kind of fudge it, so you get the best you want. You can move them around a little bit.
2: Yeah, um, I'm curious. With your steel strings, do you have a? Do you prefer? I think from a player's standpoint, like me, I like I like a steel string with a with a cutaway. So that I can play up high. But do you? Are, ha, what's your opinion on like, or I'm, do you have an opinion? Like, I think steel strings should really be closed. Or like, do you do you prefer, or like, if someone wants a nylon string with a cutaway, or are you just totally open?
3: I've done audio tests a little bit with the cutaways. Everybody wants a cutaway, so I I figure it's. They say you need about a ten percent audible difference in the sound so that you can hear it. If it's under that, it's really hard for most people to hear the difference. So I would say there's not a lot of acoustic difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same with um, the wedge that I do on my guitars, which is skinnier under the arm and wider on the knee. Uh, That, in theory, changes the internal... People often ask me that that changes the internal... Way the air the same amount of air inside i don't think that's audible i've oh, never gotcha. had anybody notice if my wedges make a difference but okay. on a parlor guitar uh-huh. it, i it, i think it could make a difference because there's a less guitar and the cutaway right. would make a more significant dent in the internal air volume
2: and lastly i i couldn't quite find a video uh but your little manser is that tuned standard or is that uh like tuned up
3: if you uh, capo a guitar at the fifth fret.
2: Gotcha. That's, gotcha. That's gotcha. What it so is. it's kind of, yeah, like a tenor guitar or a, a uke guitar type. What a cool looking guitar. I love <laughs> yeah, it.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: there's
3: a, there's a great video of it actually. Um, uh, in, you know, Anna Marie Jopek who yes. performed with Pat yes. in Poland, and they did a live concert and Pat came out and did an encore afterwards. Um, and what is the name of it? It's a Polish name. It's a Polish traditional song. He play. He comes out solo and he plays that little guitar. That's mm. one of my absolute favorite songs. And he just learned it quickly that afternoon and came out and did the encore just on the little guitar. So that's amazing. I, something. Oh, I can't remember the name. Maybe I can send you a link.
2: Well, I hope to play one of your guitars one day for sure. I'm I'm quite curious about that 18 inch model. I played. I've played one 18 inch and like. <laughs> it was kind of embarrassing i could like barely get my arm over it honestly like it was pretty pretty wild yeah. but um wow thank you for making i mean amazing guitars and it's so cool talking to to someone who you know we haven't talked but i've heard your instruments since you know i mean for like 10 plus years more you know so it's just really cool to connect on this plane so
1: oh, thank um, you
2: I'll pass it back to John here. Yeah,
1: and that's a great segue, Will, talking about all the instruments. As we wind down the interview here, I'd love to play for our listeners a track of one of your instruments. And, you know, one of my all-time favorite recordings is Matheny, One Quiet Night um, with the baritone guitar. And we are big baritone guys in New West Guitar Group. We have an electric baritone and we've had a, borrowed an acoustic one every now and then we can get our hands on it uh maybe one of your baritones is one of our next ones we'll see but let's let's take a listen to song for (laughs) let's take a listen to song for the boys yes please please santa please here we go You know, there's, there's some recordings that just always give you chills. And that's yeah. one of them.
3: I mean, I love that song.
1: I mean, we've been on the road with new West out in the middle of like Idaho. And we've just blared that in the car, like at six in the evening when the sun is going down and we're thinking, this is what Pat wrote, you know, <laughs> this is, more, <laughs> you know, it's, he recorded that at his home on just, I read in digital performer with like a DPA mic and, you know, doing his direct thing. And it's, it's just so cool. Your instruments being used in these ways by these artists and and, you know, just, again, to wind down the interview, just a couple little things before we, of course, want to help our listeners know where they can find out more about your instruments if they're interested in, in going out and, and ordering an instrument. Um, but I, the last question I had for you was, you've said, or, and I correct me if I'm wrong, I read this in another interview, but it said that, um, you said that the finishing process of the guitar is one of the most difficult processes. Uh, is that still true? Do you feel that? with, Or is it is it just... Is building this instrument from start to finish always have various challenges depending on the instrument?
3: The finishing is a challenge just because it's uh, technically it's challenging because anything can happen with lacquer. There's all sorts of ways it can go wrong. Mm -hmm. There's adhesion. There's uh, how much you put on. There's the equipment. It's really messy to do it. I mean, I'm getting more and more organized, mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's always been a challenge. I think I'm I'm pretty good at it now. Right. But <laughs> it took me my entire career to kind of feel confident that I'm I've actually kind of got that aspect of it down. But it's it's a much larger part of the instrument than most people know. Right. And it's you know you you spraying lacquer and you get high. And you've got so you just have to kind of write off that. You know, if that's appealing to you, great. Right. But <laughs> it's not. It was not particularly for me.
1: Yeah, so. well, and it's in the United States. It's hard because there's a lot of regulations on those kinds of chemicals. Some people can't have a lacquer booth or where, wherever they are. Um, yeah. Some of the luthiers I know have other people finish their instruments for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it to me, I can imagine that that's such a um, it's it's a birth, is what it is, because the instrument is 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 being able to actually be played at that point and it's past all the points of tapping on the wood and Mm -hmm. and really just building the instrument with the vision like composing a song you hear it and then it's not until it's really played and worked in that the song really comes to life and um your instruments are just marvelous you're you're definitely an icon in your field and we're you know we're so honored to have you on the high action podcast where can our listeners go learn more about your instruments and check and i know that your instruments aren't generally available um for people to go play because you you build to order but is there a place people can find out more about your instruments your practice and and if they're interested to order one of course
3: Uh, well, my website, uh, which I occasionally update (laughs) every few (laughs) years, (laughs) it's manzer.com. Um, and there's a couple of stores that have them once in a while because I've got so many out there now that they're Mm -hmm. now starting to surface as used guitars. Um, you know, like I've got one on my bench right here now that actually I just got the fellow who owned it passed away and his daughter, um, sent it to me to sell. So it's, uh, it's, Th- that's how you know there uh, there's a few stores that sell them right um dream guitars has them quite often um snyder music um i think that's about it really but um snoop around on my
1: website. Yeah, we were looking forward to seeing you at the Arch Top Festival in Colorado, because New West Guitar Group, we were actually going to be one of the performing artists this year, so we would have had a chance to play your instruments and hang, so unfortunately, with the coronavirus, you know, this didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe next year it will. Um, Peter did a great job with the festival last year, and I loved getting a chance to hang with you and have lunch with you, and you and me and Jimmy Bruno out there, that was a pretty funny conversation. (laughs) Oh, yeah,
3: Jimmy. I love Jimmy. I'm just getting to know Jimmy, oh man, what a—he he, is—he's a sweetheart. He's
1: a panic, is what he is, you know. But, <laughs> but, um, it, yeah. Well, again, we thank you for being here with us today on High Action, Linda, and it's just an honor. So, again, the great Linda Manzer here on High Action. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you it. so
3: much Yay. for having Thanks, me. The guys are great.
1: Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.